The following sermon was delivered by Pastor Frank Griffith in the Sunday morning service at Calvary Community Church in Brentwood, California. You'll find more information at calvarytruth.org. Good morning. We're in uh, Luke 17. This is a passage in Luke where he is going to major on the kingdom of God. And, And as we have seen over and over and over again, that uh, he has talked about the kingdom. Uh, But in this passage, he talks about the kingdom. The kingdom of God is a fascinating reality that we live under the kingship of Jesus Christ. There's coming a day when the kingdom is going to come in its fullness, and that's the reason we pray, according to the Lord's Prayer, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Every picture you ever get of heaven, of the third heaven, and God's dwelling place right now, you see a host of angels and cherubim and seraphim praising God, lifting up their voices in praise to him and uh, singing what we just sang, holy, holy, holy. And uh, there's coming a day when it's going to be like that on the earth, when the kingdom of God actually comes in power. Right now we are in the kingdom of God, but it's a specific form of the kingdom of God. It's the kingdom of God's dear son. But we live under the kingship and the rulership of the Lord Jesus Let me tell you, this should bring a whole lot more assurance to your heart than the fact that you live in the United States of America. You live in the kingdom of Christ, and he is the one who is in charge of the affairs of your life. We have great, great comfort in that. Um, In fact, in the last chapter, chapter 16, we looked at last week, uh, Jesus said the law and the prophets were proclaimed until John, that is John the Baptist, John the Baptist proclaimed uh, the the kingdom of God uh, during his ministry. And then then Jesus says, since that time, the gospel of the kingdom has been preached and everyone is forcing his way into it. Now, what he's talking about forcing his way into it is that the only real entrance to the kingdom of God is the narrow door, which is the Lord Jesus Christ, is faith in Christ. That's how we enter the kingdom. If you remember, Jesus told Nicodemus, the teacher of Israel, that he could not see the kingdom of God and he couldn't enter the kingdom of God until he was born again, born from above, born of the Spirit. And so in this passage, we're going to sing something about the kingdom of God, the comings of the kingdom of God. Uh, And what we've noticed is this. There's a pattern in the ministry of Jesus during his three and a half years of public ministry. Let me read you a couple passages. Matthew 4.23, Jesus was going throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every kind of disease and every kind of sickness among the people. Matthew 9.35, Jesus was going through all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every kind of disease and every kind of sickness. The fact that Jesus healed the sick and raised the dead and cast out demons was proof that he was the king, that he had the authority to do such a thing. Matthew 24, 14, the gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all the nations, and then the end will come. And so the kingdom of God is an important part of the Christian life and our experience. We have been, we were told in uh, Colossians 1.13 that we were transferred out of the kingdom of darkness or the domain of darkness into the kingdom of God's dear son. And this is where we live now. We live in this kingdom, the kingdom of God. And it's manifested in the, in the present form, which is the kingdom of God's dear son. We don't yet see the kingdom in its fullness. We don't see Jesus in his glory, but we're going to see him in the future when he comes back. When Jesus came, the kingdom came in a very real sense. Listen to this. Jesus says in Luke 11, back in chapter 11, I know you couldn't remember that far back, but in Luke 11, verse 20, Jesus said, if I drive out demons by the finger of God, that is by the power of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. If I'm doing this through the power of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Or Mark 1.15, the time has come, he said, the kingdom of God has come near, repent and believe the good news. Now, what was going on was that the leadership of Israel did not want him to be their king. They did not want him to be their Messiah because they wanted a Messiah who would destroy Rome and set them free politically. And Jesus had a different mission. He came to save he came to seek and to save that which was lost. Luke ten nine, heal the sick, 
who are there and tell them. He's Jesus sending out his, he's sending out his disciples throughout the land of Israel. And they're to announce that the king has come. And he says, heal the sick who are there and tell them the kingdom of God has come near to you. I got an email this past week. I know some of you get email from George Hurd. Uh, George, who I've known since he was a, probably about 19 years old, and I've watched his life. It's been an amazing journey he's had. And uh, as you remember, he's down at Me Too, Columbia. He had hepatitis C and cirrhosis of the liver. He was about to die. They, they told him here in the United States that if he left the U.S., he would die. But he, God had called him to Columbia, and so he went back. And through a whole series of miraculous intervention, this is what he just wrote. He said, I had further exams done in Valavienso, and I am glad to report that they verify what I already felt in my body some time back, a, full, a fulfillment of the promise I received 20 years back, which was this. This sickness is not unto death, but to the glory of God. A year ago, the magnetic resonance showed I no longer had cirrhosis in my liver due to the hep C. The cirrhosis was at level six or seven when I last was hospitalized. This month, I also fulfilled one year free of the hep C virus, which indicates that I am cured. My doctors told me that my spleen and portal vein, which connects to my liver, in my liver to my heart, would always be enlarged and due to so many years of having a bad liver. However... These latest results indicate that both my spleen and my portal vein have returned to normal size. He believes, uh, George believes that God healed him. It's not a coincidence. He said, uh, when they were doing the sonogram, he commented that I was, the doctor commented to him that I was exceptionally in good condition for my age. He's all of 63 or 4. When I told him my history, he couldn't believe it, and he repeated the exam to make sure. I was then able to share with him and the nurse how the Lord had given me a promise and that this was proof of the fulfillment of that promise. We have learned that God is faithful. We have learned that God is faithful. In other words, he's experienced the faithfulness of God. God is faithful in his own timing. He perfects that which he promised. Thanks to all of you who have been praying for me for all the years. He also attached all the, the medical scans and all that stuff. I didn't really look at those because I don't understand them. But praise God that God has healed him. The kingdom of God was manifest in his life. Now he's what he's doing. He's spending most of his time going out to the tribes, which are all around him. And me too is a little bitty city down in up in the heart of uh, the jungles and he goes out and preaches the gospel he has a church there but he goes out and preaches the gospel of these tribes now they used to be uh, headhunters and they ate people but now they they're hearing the gospel and there's been quite an ingathering of people through the gospel so he is uh, quite convinced that God has done something miraculous in his life he's been like that ever since I've known him uh when he, uh, he gave Grace School of Theology his whole library because he decided that what he was going to do was work for eight months and then go to the mission field for four months every year. Pay his own way. And that's what he did. And now he's been down there for all these years and God has been so faithful in blessing him. So let me read this chapter about the kingdom of God in Luke 17. Listen to these words. He said to his disciples, it is inevitable that stumbling blocks come, but woe to him through whom they come. That is that trip up his children, trip up his followers. It would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he was thrown into the sea than that he would cause one of these little ones to stumble. And here's the shocking part. He says, be on your guard because he's warning them about stumbling blocks. He said, if your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. And I'll tell you what I didn't get with this was, in fact, it was shocking to me. He's saying the way that we can be consistent in watching out for our brother is when he sins against us, we rebuke him. I always just overlook it. And yet Jesus said you should rebuke him and when he repents, forgive him. 
And he says, and if he sins against you seven times a day and returns to you seven times saying, I repent, forgive him. Why would, why would it be a good thing to rebuke someone who sins against you? Wouldn't it be better just to overlook it? Not if you care about that person. If you actually care that they grow, that they come to understand what they've done and, and that there is forgiveness in Christ Jesus, you help him in his walk with the Lord. And so the apostles say to the Lord, increase our faith. That's a hard one. I find it harder to rebuke somebody than I do to forgive them. And I've stored up a lot of rebuke now. So I'll be calling on some of you. Mitch. <laughs> and then Jesus responds to their request to give, increase their faith. He says, and the Lord said, if you had faith like a, a mustard seed, a tiny little speck you would say to this mulberry tree be uprooted and be planted in the sea and it would obey you which of you having a slave plowing or tending sheep will say to him when he has come in from the field any of you who have a slave plowing or tending sheep will say to him when he comes in from the field come immediately and sit down and eat let me let me serve you some food He says, but will he not say, won't the master say, prepare something for me to eat and properly clothe yourself, serve me while I eat and drink, and afterward you may eat and drink. That would just be the normal thing when you hear the command of your master, Jesus says. And he does not thank the slave because he had done the things which were commanded, does he? No. So you too, when you do all the things which you are commanded to, to you, you say, we are unworthy slaves. We have done only what, that which we ought to have done. What a, what a view of the authority of Jesus Christ in our lives. And he says, while he was on the way to Jerusalem, he's going south towards Jerusalem, he was passing between Samaria and Galilee. That would be like, you're going to L.A., but you pass between Fresno and Bakersfield. So they're passing between Samaria and Galilee. As he entered a village, ten leprous men who stood at the distance met him. They stood at a distance because it wasn't allowed for them to get close to anybody because they could infect them with their leprosy. They were unclean. And they raised their voices, shouting, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. When he saw them, he said to them, Go and show yourselves to the priests. In other words, go and see if the priest can see that you've been made clean. And as they were going, they were cleansed. If you've ever read about leprosy, you know that it's an incurable condition. And Jesus says to him, go see the priest. Let him examine you. And as they were going, they were cleansed. Now one of them, when he saw that he had been healed, turned back, glorifying God with a loud voice. And he fell on his face at his feet, giving thanks to him, and he was a Samaritan. The Jews thought the Samaritans were less than human. Then Jesus answered and said, were there not ten cleansed? But the nine, where are they? Was no one found... Was no one found who returned to give glory to God except this foreigner? And he said to him, stand up and go. Your faith has made you well. What faith? Do you see any great act of faith here? What did he do that Jesus would say, your faith has healed you? What was his faith? He asked. You know the primary way you you exercise manifest faith in your prayer life? Is you ask. You actually believe that God can answer your prayers. And so you ask him. That's all they did. They just called him master and asked him to cleanse them. And Jesus said, your faith has made you well, has cleansed you. What are you asking for? Sometimes we get tired of asking because we're asking God for something that so, seems so impossible. After we've asked a few times and it doesn't happen, uh, we stop asking. These men asked, and Jesus healed them. 
And he says, your faith has made you well. Your faith in me has made you well. They believed that he could and would cleanse them. And he said to the disciples, the days will come when you will long to see one of the days of the Son of Man, and you will not see it. They will say to you, look there, look here. Do not go away and do not turn, run after them. For just like the lightning, when it flashes out of one part of the sky, shines to the other part of the sky, so will the Son of Man be in his day. Now he's talking about the future coming of the Son of Man. He's there. They've been traveling with him. He's been preaching the gospel, and he's been opposed by the leadership of Israel. But he says he's coming back in glory and in power. And he says, you don't have to. Every time somebody says, hey, the, the Messiah's over here. Come over here and look. Don't do that because everyone will see him when he comes back. You're not going to have to check the news. You won't have to check your, your, your iPhone. You know, you can't even befriend Jesus and, and figure out where he's at. Oh, he's still in the third heaven. Can't do that. When he comes, you will know it. But he'll come in great glory. He says, but first, he must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. Where's he going? He's on his way to Jerusalem. What's going to happen? He's told his disciples, they're going to arrest me and beat me and spit upon me and crucify me. And he says, I have to go through this first before he goes back to the Father. It's been 2,000 years since Jesus went back to the Father, and he hasn't come yet. And just as it happened in the days of Noah, so it will be also in the days of the Son of Man. They were eating, they were drinking, they were marrying, they were being given in marriage until the day of Noah, that Noah entered the ark, and the flood came and destroyed them all. They were totally surprised. It was the same as happened in the days of Lot. They were eating, they were drinking. That, that is when the, when the wrath of God was poured out upon Sodom and Gomorrah. And he says, they were eating, they were drinking, they were buying, they were selling, they were planning, they were building. Normal life. But on the day that Lot went out from Sodom at the, at the obedience to the word of God, it rained fire and brimstone from heaven and destroyed them all. It will be just the same on the day that the Son of Man, the Son of Man, this is Jesus' favorite title for himself. He uses this more than anything else. He's the Son of Man. I'll show you in a minute where that comes from. On that day, when he comes back, the one who's on the housetop, whose goods are in the house, must not go down to take them out. And likewise, the one who's in the field must not turn back. Remember Lot's wife. I'm sure you all know the Bible story too, don't you? About Lot's wife. She looked back. She was turned into a pillar of salt. Whoever seeks to keep his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life will preserve it. I tell you, on that night, there will be two in one bed. One will be taken, the other left. He doesn't tell us if the one taken is taken to judgment or if he is saved from the coming judgment. But one will be taken, one left. There will be two women grinding at the same place. One will be taken, the other left. Two men will be in the field. One will be taken, the other left. Answering, they said to him, where, Lord? And that was where they're going to be taken. And this is his answer. Where the body is, there also the vultures will be gathered. <laughs> Sounds like they're going to be taken to judgment. But think of this. The kingdom of God is being manifest now in the kingdom that we are in, although it's not as spectacular as it's going to be in the future. But Jesus is the king of glory. He's the high king of heaven. And we live under his rule and his protection. What we're going to do is look at this passage. I want to give you a simple outline. The first is, in these first ten verses, is kingdom ethics. First, he gives uh, an impossible command in the first four verses that I read to you. That command was, when a brother sins against you, rebuke him. That's your assignment this week. Now make sure it's sin and not just that you don't like it. You know, you bought me chocolate ice cream instead of vanilla. 
But when someone sins against you for their benefit, you rebuke them. And if they repent, which they turn from that sin, you forgive them. But what if they keep on doing it? What do they do it over and over again? He says, if they come back seven times, forgive them. And Peter asked him, how often should we forgive? Seven times? And Jesus said, I say 70 times seven. In other words, there's no limit on it. When someone repents, we forgive. There's forgiveness in the kingdom of God. This is kingdom ethics. And it's simple, trusting obedience. That's what it is. And this, this command that he's giving us, given us here to rebuke our brother when he sins against us. I got to tell you, for me, that's, that's supernatural. That seems really hard. I would rather look really good by just acting like it didn't bother me. And I didn't notice. Rather than caring enough about the person to say, brother, you know that the word of God is clear. You know, when somebody comes to you and slanders somebody, I'm sure you've never had that happen, but if somebody comes to you and they're slandering a fellow believer, they're slandering somebody, we need to rebuke them because it's sin. And if we don't rebuke them, what we're doing is we're entering into their sin right along with them. Or what about gossip? See, we, we, are, we are to take seriously the condition of our brother who's sinning against us. And so we rebuke him so that we can, repent, we can forgive him when he repents. Boy, that would change our lifestyle, wouldn't it, if we took this seriously? If your brother sins against you, rebuke him. And when he repents, forgive him. Forgiveness in the Bible, there's a, a dozen words for forgiveness. One of the word pictures is forgiveness is sending it away. It's no longer in sight. The idea is you absorb the cost of that sin by forgiving. But we forgive in response to repentance because Christ has paid the penalty for our sins. And so we're told in 1 John chapter 1 that as we live the Christian life, if we, what we should not do is say that we don't have sin, that I'm not a sinner. You know, I got saved and my sin's all gone. I never sin anymore. Oh, don't talk to my wife. But what, what John says is, don't, if you say you don't have sin, you're deceiving yourself. You're not deceiving anybody else. And he says, if we say that our sin doesn't matter, then we're calling God a liar. If it didn't matter, why did he send Christ to become a human being and to die for our sins? He says, but if you confess your sins, God is faithful. That is, you can count on this. If you confess your sin, he's faithful and righteous to forgive you of your sin and to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. That's an amazing truth for the believer. Because here's what happens to us is we get into these repetitive sins and we think, I just can't do this again. I can't, ask, I can't confess this sin again. I've done it a thousand times and I'm sure God's getting sick of it. So I'm just going to keep my mouth shut. He said, if we confess our sins... He's faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Now, actually paying attention to my life and recognizing when I act into disobedience to God's command. Like this, this commandment right here, if your brother sins against you, rebuke him. I've never practiced that. Um... And I can see why it is a word of wisdom from Almighty God. That when a person sins, instead of just ignoring it, because we care about them, they're a fellow disciple of Jesus Christ, we rebuke them. Now, rebuke doesn't mean you get mad and call them a name. Rebuke means to simply confront their mind with the truth of what's just happened. And when there's repentance, you forgive. In 1 John 2, 
right after that section in chapter one about confessing our sins, John says, the reason I'm writing this to you is because I don't want you to sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father. He's come alongside the Father for us. We have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. That's his defense for us, that he's perfectly righteous. And he's our advocate, our parakletos. And so I, with confidence, can confess my sin and know that God forgives me. So the best practice is when you confess your sin, then give God thanks for forgiveness. Because his forgiveness isn't that your promise you'll never do it again. His forgiveness comes as a result of what Christ has done. We have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. And he's the propitiation for our sins. So this is kingdom ethics, just simple trusting obedience, like a servant would obey his master. So I don't need a load of faith. I remember one night on a Tuesday night Bible study over at Valley Bible years ago, uh, the guy that was teaching, Phil, was talking about we need to pray. We need to ask God's, for God's wisdom so we know what to do. And this guy raised his hand. He said, should we pray about going to work every day? And he says, and Phil said, no, you don't have to pray for that. Just get up and go. Just get out of bed, get your clothes on and go to work. Just act like a, a servant obeying his master. That's what he's called us to. And then in verses 5 through 10, you have the master and the slaves simply obeying what the master says. And so we don't need great faith to obey the commands of Christ. I've, I've asked my classes at, at seminary, as we've talked about it, and I asked him, how many of you are, because uh, after a few cl- times we've talked about this, I said, okay, how many of you now have a group of believers that you meet with so you can build one another up in the most holy faith? I want to ask you that. How many of you have a group of people that you meet with and you can build one another up in the most holy faith, whether it's two or three or five or 10 or 20? That's what we're, that's what we're commanded to do. That's the command. In Jude, chapter, in verse 20 of Jude, we are to be building one another up in the most holy faith. We need to be getting together with fellow believers. So that's a command from the master through his brother, his physical brother, Jude. That we should be building one another up in the most holy faith. That's so much better than uh, gossip, isn't it? Have you ever noticed that gossip and gospel has the same root? Gospel means good news. Gossip is news, and a lot of times it's fake news, huh? It's just some people, you know, itching ears. We want to hear all the bad stuff. What has this guy done? But what he says we should be doing is sharing with each other in such a way that we're building one another up in the most holy faith. The most holy faith is the, the word of God. It's the, the truth that we have been given in the word of God. And so one of the things that we need to be doing continually is building one another up in the most holy faith. The second thing I want you to notice is this prayer in the kingdom. Notice in verses 11 through us 19, listen to what it says. While he was on the way to Jerusalem, he was passing between Samaria and Galilee. As he entered a village, 10 leprous men who stood at a distance met him and they raised their voices. You know what that means. They shouted to him, Jesus, master, have mercy on us. Now Jesus is going to say that was faith, the manifestation of faith. Uh, this is stunning, isn't it? That faith is manifested when we ask God to meet our needs. When we pray according to his will, we pray for one another, we pray for our family and so forth. And he says, Master, have mercy on us. And he saw them and he said to them, go and show yourselves to the priest. 
Now, what he's saying here is, and I don't know if they caught it until they were going, but you had to go show yourself at the priest if you, your leprosy left you. And so as they're going, they were cleansed. And Jesus asked this one man who came back to talk to him, a Samaritan. A Samaritan. Jesus, it seems, has a lot of encounters with Samaritans, doesn't he? And this Samaritan comes back, and Jesus said, your faith has made you well. Ask yourself, what have I been asking God for? I haven't been asking him, Lord, help me to get up in the morning. I can do that. The thing to ask him for is what you need God, what you need Jesus Christ to do in your life and for your life. You know, in in Luke chapter 18, we haven't got there yet, but in Luke 18, when Jesus is passing through Jericho, and as he's going along, this man, blind Bartimaeus, remember him? Blind Bartimaeus? Somebody shake your head, yes, you, you read the Bible, right? Blind Bartimaeus, he's sitting beside the road, and, and there's a big ruckus because Jesus is passing through, and there's a lot of people following him and talking and everything, and he says, what, what's all the commotion about? Because he can't see. And they said, it's Jesus of Nazareth. So he begins to call out to Jesus. You know how it is, somebody like that. Start making all the noise, and everybody's saying, would you please shut up? And that's what they said to him. Would you please be quiet? And what did Jesus do? He said, bring him here. And then he asked the strangest question. You remember what Jesus asked blind Bartimaeus? This guy's blind. He can't see. And they bring him to Jesus. And Jesus asked him this question. Nobody knows what it is? Anybody know? You know what it is? What do you want me to do for you? And you think, wow, it's pretty obvious what his need is, right? But of course, you don't know. Maybe he was just saying, would you please touch? I got an ingrown fingernail here. Would you please just touch my hand and give me some relief from this pain? But he actually wanted his sight. And so in faith, he asked Jesus to give him his sight. And he healed him. Isn't that amazing? What are you asking him for that's impossible? You ever think about that? What is it that I'm actually asking God for that only he could do? Do I have the courage to ask him? Do I have the faith to ask him? Well, in this next section here, the comings of the kingdom, the point is the kingdom... um, is going to come. It has come in one way now. It came when Jesus came. The kingdom of God came near them. And they're wondering, well, um, what's it going to be like when you come back, when the kingdom comes? And he said, the kingdom had come, but they didn't recognize it. Turn back with me to Daniel. I've got to give you some exercise here. A biblical, uh, find the verse. Daniel chapter 7. Daniel is a, he's one of the prophets who wrote while he was in captivity in Babylon. He was in in the Babylonian captivity. He was one of the first that were taken out of Jerusalem and taken to Babylon in captivity. He was a young man. And he was there for 70 years. He's in his 80s when he's finally set free. So he's there over 70 years. In this passage, in Daniel 7, he has a dream. Now, first of all, you ought to understand something. There are four beasts here in this. He's he's having this dream. God's giving him a vision. And he sees these four beasts. Now, they correspond to the four parts of the statue back in chapter 2. God was revealing something to him important. So four great beasts representing the rulers of world empires before they ever came into existence. The only one in existence at this time was Babylon. Babylon was a world empire, and they had taken Israel captive. And so Daniel has this dream, and God shows him four 
beasts, and each beast represents a ruler of a worldwide empire. The only one that was in existence at this point when he had the dream was Nebuchadnezzar, the ruler of Babylon. And the first beast is found in verse 4. It's, it's a beast like a lion and an eagle. <laughs> a lion and an eagle. Both symbols there are represent, actually they're used in other places in the Old Testament, represent Babylon. One speaks of his strength, the other his speed in his, war, in his battles. And these were used by, Jer- Jeremiah used these same images of the, of Babylon and the ruler of Babylon. The next one is, it says, verse 5, resembling a bear. This is a symbol of the Medo-Persian Empire, which later became the Persian Empire that actually ruled over Israel. And this speaks about their strength and their fierceness, fierceness in battle. They went in and overthrew Babylon. So this is a second world empire that he's telling them that's going to exist. And then the third is like a leopard in verse 6, represents the Greek Empire under Alexander the Great. I'm not going to just relax. I'm not going to give you an eschatology. I'm just wanting you to see this vision that he's had. And then the fourth beast was Rome. It was an unusual beast. Notice down in verse 7. After this, I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, a, a fourth beast, dreadful and terrifying, extremely strong, and it had large iron teeth. It devoured and crushed and trampled down the remainder with its feet, and it was different from all the other beasts that were before it, and it had ten horns. While I was contemplating the horns, behold, another horn, a little one, came up among them, and three of the first horns were pulled out by the roots before it. And behold, the horn possessed eyes like the eyes of a man and a mouth uttering great boasts. So you have these four kingdoms that are coming. But then notice what happens. He keeps looking. And down in verse 9, look at verse 9. I kept looking until thrones were set up, and the Ancient of Days, that's a reference to the Father, God the Father. The Ancient of Days took his seat, the ruler over all things. His vesture was like white snow. His hair, the hair of his head was pure wool. White hair is very godlike. And the hair of his head was like pure wool. His throne was ablaze with flames. Its wheels were like a burning fire. The same kind of picture that Ezekiel gives us of God on his throne. A river of fire was flowing and coming out from before him. Thousands upon thousands were attending him, and myriads upon myriads were standing before him. The court sat. That is, God is sitting here overlooking his creation. And it says, and the books were opened. This is a legal document. The charges against these kingdoms. I want you to skip down. Verse 13. I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, God's giving him a revelation. It says, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man was coming. Son of man is used a lot of times in Scripture to refer to a ruler of mankind in one way or another. It says, he came up to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And Jesus takes this title and applies it to himself that he's the son of man. So what does it mean? Well, notice the next verse. And to him was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom that all the peoples, nations, and men of every language might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away like all the other kingdoms are going to pass away. But this kingdom will never pass away And this son of man is going to be the king over these kingdom, this kingdom, this actually creation-wide kingdom. And his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. Daniel goes on to describe the impact this had on him. But what we have here is this picture of the son of man who is a picture of Jesus Christ. Now stop and think about this. The eternal Son of God became the incarnate Son of God, which just means the eternal Son of God became flesh and dwelt among us, that he took on a human nature. So he's God, 
but he's been made one with humanity. How in the world will God ever reconcile humanity with himself? After the rebellion, after the fall in Genesis 3, and then what follows is this continual degradation of mankind. How is mankind ever going to be reconciled to God? God sends his son, and he becomes one of us. He becomes one of us. He becomes a man. He takes on flesh. And this is the son of man. This is the one who's going to reign over the kingdom of God. Now, this coming of the kingdoms, the kingdom that is here in verses 20 and 21 is the kingdom uh, that they are seeing personal, up close and personal. They're seeing the manifestation of the kingdom of God's dear son in activity with Jesus physically present at that time. And so in this particular case, if you notice in verse 20, it says, now having been questioned by the Pharisees as to when the kingdom of God was coming, he answered them and said, the kingdom of God is not coming with signs to be observed, nor will they say, look here, it is here, or there it is, for behold, the kingdom of God is in your midst. Now they're thinking about, okay, they're talking to the king who has come into their presence right in their midst, and they're asking him, What's it going to be like when the kingdom comes? And Jesus, in essence, says, it's here. I'm the son of man. I'm the king of the kingdom of God. And he was right there physically standing before them. And they had seen him over and over and over again manifest his mighty power as the king of the kingdom of God in healing the sick, raising the dead, casting out demons. And yet they they would not recognize him as the king of the kingdom of God. He said, it's right here in your midst, which means Jesus was right in the middle of them. This verse is not saying the kingdom of God is in your heart. It's saying the kingdom of God was present because Jesus was present. Now, it's true with us today, we are in the kingdom of God's dear son, and we, are, we live in his presence continually, and we can't see him with our physical eyes. So the first manifestation of this kingdom was when Jesus comes of this son of man. He came and he was right in the middle of them and they didn't recognize him. They didn't recognize him. Is that amazing? They were standing there looking at the king of glory and they did not recognize him. And he said, if you can't believe me, believe me for the works that I do. Look at what he had been doing. Every time he healed somebody, every time he raised the dead, every time he cast out demons, he was manifesting his power and his authority as the king of the kingdom of God. And they didn't recognize him. And in fact, this was a part of the plan of God. They're going to they're going to vent their anger and their wrath against the Lord Jesus Christ. But he's coming back again in the future. And the kingdom that's coming is described for us here in verses 22 through 30. And this is what he says. And he said to his disciples, the days will come when you will long to see one of the days of the Son of Man, and you will not see it. I don't know. I can't even imagine what the disciples, the the apostles who were traveling with him were his disciples. And when Jesus was taken up, remember the angel said to them, why do you stand here looking up? He'll return in the same way. Can you imagine what it was like over those next days? In fact, we have a glimpse of it in in Luke 24. When we see these disciples, these two disciples walk with Jesus on the road to Emmaus. And he's talking to them. And he's explaining how the word of God reveals who he is. But they don't know he's talking about himself. They think he's talking about the Messiah, which is himself. And then he opened their eyes. But then those following days, imagine... And with us, we have never seen him with our physical eyes. And yet we live in his spiritual presence. We are the body of Christ. We're the temple of the Holy Spirit. And he says, for just like lightning, when it flashes out of one part of the sky, shines to the other part. When he comes back, it's going to be very visible. You're not going to have to say to people, oh, by the way, Jesus came back yesterday. You're not going to have to say that. 
you probably have to give some explanation of this is exactly what the Bible told us was going to take place. I don't know if it's going to happen this month or next month or next year or 10 years or 20 years or 50 years or 1,000 years. But he's coming back. And he goes on, he says, but first he must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. His own people are going to reject him and crucify him. And he said he has to pass through this in order to complete his work of redemption for us. So when Jesus says in Mark 10:45, even the Son of Man did not come to be served, that has great significance to it. This is the one who's going to be the king over the empire, the, the kingdom of God that covers the entire creation. And he says, but he didn't come to be served. He came to serve. How did he serve you? He gave his life as a ransom price to set us free from our slavery to sin. And he says, just as it happened in the days of Noah, so it will also be in the days of the Son of Man. They will be eating, they will be drinking, they were marrying, they were being given in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark and the flood came and destroyed them all. It was the same as happened in the days of Lot. Verse 30, it will be just the same on the day that the Son of Man is revealed to everyone. Everyone. He's going to be revealed in his glory. On that day, the one who is on the housetop. Now, in this section here, verses 31 through 37, you see the kingdom from which no one can run away. The kingdom's coming. We're looking for it. But there are, there are a lot of people who are not looking for it, and they don't want to believe it's going to happen. But you can't run away from this kingdom. Listen to what he says. On that day, the one who is on the housetop and whose goods are in the house must not go down to take them out. And likewise, the one who is in the field must not turn back. Remember Lot's wife. Whoever seeks to keep his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life will preserve it. I tell you, on that night, there will be two in one bed. One will be taken, and the other be left. There will be two women grinding at the same place, and one will be taken, the other left. Two men will be in the field. One will be taken, the other left. And answering, they said to him, Where, Lord? And he said to them, Where the body is, there also the vultures will be gathered. In other words, what's going to happen? It's going to be manifest, and everybody's going to see it and know what's going on. Jesus is coming back. But you know what? Jesus wants us to live in his presence and in, in fully kingdom aware right now because he's the king of glory. Jesus is the high king of heaven. And he rules over this entire creation of God right now in a, a, a limited way in the sense that he can't be seen, but he's coming back. But he wants you to live, the way you prepare for his second coming is living in his kingdom now and responding to him as your master, as your king. We are slaves and he is our master. That's the picture he gives us here. So I don't have to work up any faith to obey his commandments. I just have to know the truth. This is Jesus, the Son of Man. And he's coming one day to make all things right in this world, in this creation. And it's not going to be by sending out a million drones to break your skull open. He's going to come back and we're going to see him. We're going to see him. And the glorious thing for the believer, and this is only to believers, but in 1 John chapter 3, it says, when we see him, we will be like him because we will see him as he is. And the only way you can see him as he is is if your eyes are opened and you are transformed into the very image of Christ in character. We have an incredible gift from God. We've been given the kingdom. We've been given the king. And he rules over our lives. And we can appeal to him. The way you manifest faith, the way, if you want to measure your faith, here's a good way to do it. Take a piece of paper today and write down everything you've been asking God for. And see if that manifests the fact that you have faith in Christ as king and ruler over his kingdom. Do you have the faith to ask him for the impossible? Do you have faith in Christ to ask him for anything because you know he is the 
the glorious one who has all power and authority and might. And so there's nothing that you could ask him that would stretch him. Now, it doesn't mean he's going to answer every prayer because sometimes we ask stupid things and dumb things or things that are just simply out of his will that he's going to do something glorious in your life by allowing you to go through what you're going through. But the way that we are to live in the kingdom of God is living under the rule of Christ. Do you live under the rule of Christ? Is he your master? Is he your Lord? That's what Jesus is telling his disciples. And when he leaves them, and they no longer see him physically, they live their lives in obedience to their master, who is physically absent, but very much personally present. That's why you were given the Holy Spirit, to make your heart very much aware that Christ, your King, lives in you. And he's in our midst. And so we can, we can treat him like the King and the Master. Let's pray. Our Father, when we contemplate what you've done for us in giving us Christ, of sending him into the world and becoming one of us, of going to the cross, of purchasing our salvation and of dwelling among us and actually giving us his ear so that we can pray in his name, that we have freedom of speech. We can come before you, Father, and ask you to meet the needs of your people in the name of Jesus Christ, the Son of Man. I pray that you would help us to stretch ourselves that we would begin looking to you, Father, to touch the lives of people. I pray for those people you've placed in my life that I'm trying to share the gospel with. I pray, Father, that the Spirit of God would come in power and in conviction and that the words of the gospel would penetrate their hearts and they would believe and enter this glorious kingdom of God's dear Son. Thank you for the blessings we have now, and we look forward to the day when Jesus returns. It's a, it's a joyful expectation that we have that Christ is coming back, and how we thank you for that. Help us to live this week under the rule of Christ in our lives. Empower us to do that, Father, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Respond to this message or learn more. Please visit calvarytruth.org.